Hello, welcome along to our 13th episode. I'm Dylan Haskins. And I'm Lisa Hannigan. And if we're coming to you in your headphones or on your laptop, you should know that we are not alone. There are 130 people sitting in front of us in a room that really takes the biscuit as venues go. Uh, yes, we're in the long gallery of Kilkenny Castle. It's looking very Game of Thrones in here. Hopefully, hopefully there'll be less violence and boobs. Uh, we shall see. Who knows? We'll go. Uh, for those of you listening at home who haven't been, Kilkenny is a beautiful medieval city in the southeast of Ireland. Um, and this castle in which we sit dominates the whole city, the landscape. And it has done for uh, about 840 years or so. Um, to give you a bit of the, its story, it was built for William Marshall, who some historians argue was the greatest knight ever. He was one of the enforcers of the Magna Carta, which was sealed 800 years ago this year. Uh, he came come to Ireland to marry Isabel after the Norman invasion, the daughter of Strongbow, which is pretty much as, as serious as you can get. Um, the castle was then bought by James Butler III, Earl of Ormond, in 1391, and the Ormonds lived here for almost 600 years. One of the butlers born in this castle was Margaret Butler, who was the grandmother to Anne Boleyn, the, the second wife of King Henry VIII, which would make her the great-grandmother to Queen Elizabeth I. It's actually said that Anne was brought back from France originally as a potential wife for James the Ninth Earl, but as soon as Henry VIII set his eyes on her, that was that. But the castle was given to the Irish state in 1967 by James Butler, and a nominal fee of £50 was handed over, sort of really just to make the contract legal. But word of this got out into the papers and, uh, you know, people were saying, like, a steal, like the castle, 50 quid. And apparently, Butler used to say how for weeks afterwards he got letters from all sorts of people asking if he'd any other castles that he wanted to sell. (laughs) And each of the past eight centuries have left their mark on this building. And I think it's fair to say that the story of Kilkenny Castle is deeply interconnected with the story of Ireland and, to a further extent as well, the the relationship between Ireland and Britain. So what better place to bring our show? Um, We've been invited here by Kilkenny Tradfest, and on our Holy Trinity today we have an icon of traditional music. We also have a former Lions in Ireland international rugby player, an Oscar and Academy Award-nominated animator, and our music guest is the only person to win the Choice Music Prize twice. So prepare to feel underachieving, I know I already do. Our first guest is here tomorrow. I write Tom Moore. Uh, Tom is a director, animator, and Kilkenny native. Uh, and Tom founded the locally based uh, animation studio Cartoon Saloon in '99 with Paul Young and Nora Toomey. They've been producing beautiful, thoughtful, and funny work ever since. Uh, both of their feature films, The Secret of Kells and The Song of the Sea, have they both have matching. Oscar nominations and Tom has very kindly arrived here today from Dingle where he received the Murakami Award um, at the Irish Animation Awards. You also may I say have the nicest tattoos I've ever seen. Yes, this is uh, not, you can't see them. (laughs) Sorry all the listeners at home, they're great though. And our next guest is also a local man, uh, albeit of a different vintage. Um, it's 40 years since Willie Duggan first ran onto a rugby pitch wearing the number eight green jersey. He's been capped 45 times. And Willie is regularly included in lists of the, the greatest starting 15 um, of, of all time. In, so he's, he's a real Hall of Famer in international rugby. He's also one of the greatest characters the game has known. Um, one of his former teammates described him as the Scarlet Pimpernel of Irish rugby because he was so hard to find for training. 
And uh, another former teammate, speaking of the, uh, the speeches Willie gave in his stint as team captain for Ireland, and he said that um, Willie only used three words in his speeches, but he used them well. I don't know if we have any children here, but can you share those words with us? Uh, I'm afraid not. <laughs> those words are, uh, they can only be repeated in dressing rooms, so I think we should leave it to the dressing room. <laughs> we can use our imaginations. I think you could. <laughs> uh, our musical guest today is one of the most prolific and talented songwriters ever produced in this country. Um, you will know him from his band, Jape, who've five records to their name. Uh, two of which have won the Choice Music Prize. Um, he's also a member of the Redneck Manifesto, whose four records have saved countless uh, parties and festivals over the years. Uh, Jape have just released their new record, This Chemical Sea, Richie Egan. And our final guest is uh, a world music pioneer and an icon of traditional music, probably one of the, one of the most influential people in, in, in traditional music over the past 50 years in Ireland. Between himself and Donald Lunny, they created an entirely new sound from Sweeney's Men in the mid-60s to the enormously successful Planksty in the 1970s to Patrick Street and Mosaic. Um, Andy is constantly touring, constantly collaborating and is a genuine troubadour. He turned 70 in 2012 and a whole host of musicians gathered for a series of concerts to celebrate him. How many birthday parties did you have? Well, that was just the one, but I'm thinking of having a 70th birthday party every year uh, <laughs> from now on. Uh, so uh, please do give them a warm welcome to our Holy Trinity as we're about to hear their three stories and songs to inspire, alarm and humour. If you would like to tweet during the show, we're at SoundingsPod um, on Twitter and our website is soundingspod.com. Tom, would you like to start us off with a story of inspiration? I'm afraid that this is the one thing I don't have a proper story for, That's but um, I'd like to talk about two inspiring things. I had one inspiring thing I was going to talk about. I'll talk about that second, but uh, as it happened, you know, we came back, my wife, Lisa and I had spent four weeks in California and a week in Hawaii, so we'd had a great time around the Oscars. We came back to the snow and the rain and the cold, and I was wondering, oh God, what am I doing here? <laughs> but then we went down to Dingle there last week, and as we drove down, the rain cleared and the sun came out, and I just thought that, what an inspiring place to be. And I had uh, four days of just pure inspiration, sketching down there in Dingle with students and other animators and stuff. And uh, I just realised just how magical. And I kind of managed to see, I suppose, the country a little bit through the eyes of a visitor for one of the first times in my life, and I thought it was really inspiring. So I wanted to add that. But my inspiring thing I want to talk about is a, an organisation here in Kilkenny that I was a, a member of when I was younger, Young Irish Filmmakers. When I was about 14, I... Um, heard about this uh, young Irish filmmakers thing setting up and I thought there might be some girls involved. So I decided to, uh, to go down and see what it was all about. And as it happened, I actually met my wife there, Lisa. But um, the, the main thing I think about young Irish filmmakers is that, you know, it's been on a shoestring forever and it's been going here well, since I was 14, so that wasn't yesterday. And um, the amount of amazing things that have come out of it, I mean, there's people that are doing fantastic stuff in theatre, devious theatre, there's microfilms, uh, there's ourselves, Cartoon Saloon, they gave us a space to start up when we first were getting started. And uh, it just continues to operate, you know, year after year, as I said, on the shoestring. I just think it's a fantastic resource here in Kilkenny and maybe a little bit undersung, so I like to sing its praises when I get a chance. And uh, even people that haven't gone on to work in film who 
started out in Young Irish Filmmakers. I think they, they took something special from it, you know. For someone who wasn't into sport, particularly growing up, it was a, a refuge, you know. It was a, a kind of a team-building uh, thing that we could all do together. And a lot of people who even work in other disciplines still talk about the days in Filmmakers as being the making of them. So, I, for me, it's very inspirational that someone like Mike Kelly came down to Kilkenny and was willing to set something up like that and keep it going all these years, you know. And as a really important matchmaking resource, clearly. As yes. Well. <laughs> <laughs> it's a secondary value to it, yeah. Great. W Willie, do you, want to, do you want to give us your story next to Inspire? Yeah, this, uh, this could be taking up um, a little bit wrong now what I'm going to talk about. But um, when you're running out on a, a pitch on an international day, um, I hope I don't insult anyone when I say this, but you feel like shit on a swing swan. Yeah, you? <laughs> Your, your knees are absolutely buckling under you and you're wondering why in the name of God am I going out here? And uh, you come out in the pitch and you start thinking, if I make a show myself here, how is it, you know, there's 80,000 people in the stadium and you can't make a cock of the thing. And then you stand for the national anthem and I'm talking about my day. And to stand there and just listen to the anthem being sung and you're there and you're thinking about the responsibilities you have and so on and so forth. And I just think, you know, a anthem is the most aspiring thing you could have. The encouragement it gives you and gets you out there in the park. But um, when you look at the All Blacks, they have their anthem and then they have the Hakka. And what a double boost that is to them. It's, it's, it's really an incredible. You know, it, it really livens up and gives you the six inches between the ears that you need, which is total concentration on the 80 minutes and on hand and so on and so forth, but um, especially when you go on foreign fields to hear the national anthem is absolutely magnificent. And how our guys are performing today, our international 15 today, when they go out foreign, we get Ireland's call played. And I think that we should, as a nation, go back and have our national anthem played all over the world. It's just a bit of a thought I'm putting out there for the the people to think about. Well, we get both now, don't we? That we get Ireland's call and the national anthem. Uh, we do. We get the national anthem first, and then we get Ireland's call. You think it should be the other way around? It should be the other way around. Is there is it a case that some countries have a much better national anthem than other countries? Well, I don't think the tune matters. It, it's what it stands for. You know, I mean, we don't stand for Ireland's call. I mean, what is Ireland's call? It's a made up song. It's a lot now, of key changes. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's actually a nice song. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's, it doesn't give you the wow factor, does it? It wouldn't want you to go to, wouldn't make you go to war with anyone. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, that's what rugby is, actually a war. Do any of the musicians sitting on the Trinity have any opinions on national anthems and which ones are good and which ones well, should be rewritten? I often wish that I had been born in France because I think the Marseillaise is, is a, a really triumphant uh, national anthem. There was, um, I interviewed Jules Hollands once and he told me they were playing a gig at the G8 summit in um, wherever all these world leaders meet and uh, they went to play All You Need Is Love um, uh, by the Beatles and they start... Uh, they start and Jacques Chirac stood up <laughs> and and then out of courtesy Blair stood up and they, and they all stood up and then it went into all you need is love and he said all these world leaders were standing around and they didn't know what to do so they just started dad dancing <laughs> 
anyway, Andy, do you, do you want to give us your story? Well, yes, I was, I was thinking about uh, my very early days as a, as a musician and uh, how lucky I was one day to be uh, brought to a pub in Merion Row called O'Donoghue's. And uh, if you don't know where it is, it's 15 Merion Row, Dublin 2, telephone 62807. <laughs> but uh, I loved it so much uh, because I, I met people in there who had been absent from my life before that. And I, I just... Uh, I'd been waiting to meet all these wonderful people, uh, and there they all were in the same place. So I, I uh, rented uh, an apartment or a room in a house opposite so that I could be very close to the front door of O'Donoghue's at half past ten every morning. And uh, I'd go in there, and uh, one of the first things I just... I mean, at 10.30 in the morning, there was nobody else there. There was just the smell of disinfectant. And uh, I used to go into the gents' toilet, and there... 45 years ago, there was this wonderful drone. The cistern was uh, damaged in some way, and the sound was kind of... And you know what? It's still there 45 years later. I went in uh, a couple of months ago. And, and, uh, but anyway, the thing was that I, I became obsessed with going in at half past 10 into the gents' toilet with the smell of disinfectant in my nostrils and singing traditional ballads against this drone. And uh, I was so obsessed with it that I would do it every morning for at least an hour and a half. And of course, by, by 12 o'clock, um, the, the pub was, was uh, operating as a, a public house. And consequently, people were using the gents' toilet for the, the, uh, the reason it had been built. Uh, and I had to dodge all these people and, and, and kind of... Uh, hold my tongue. When the door opened, I'd be in mid-sentence in, in a 45-verse ballad, and, uh, and the door would open, and I'd be kind of cut off, like a, a, I'd be looking at myself in the mirror, kind of combing my hair or something. But uh, O'Donoghue's was a wonderful place. And I, can I sing my song now? Tell us, first of all, why, why were you there before the pub opened? Were you there from the night before? Oh, no, before, it, was open, it opened at half past ten. But, uh, but nobody went into it till about 11. Okay. It was a wonderful place. And I wrote this song uh, about, which is probably better than I can describe the, 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 the place. And if you don't mind, I'll sing it. It was August 1962 when I first set foot in O'Donoghue's A world of music, friends and booze hastening towards me I never could have guessed as I walked through the door Just what the future had in store A blueprint for my life I saw Lying there to taunt me Well, I was an actor, I played straight I played in the gaiety, played at the gate My mother in 1928 had trod those boards before me I was getting tired of the company An actor's life did not suit me I said goodbye, you'll never see Me back here in Neary's Johnny Moynihan in his fusty coat Was the first to play there in Merrion Row He brought the bazooki to Ireland, you know Way storm along, John Paddy and Maureen O'Donoghue Kieran Burke, Luke Kelly, Ronnie Drew Barney McKenna and me and you In the early 1960s 
Well, Patty and Maureen, very, very sound, though she liked to camp on the moral high ground. You had long hair, you were outward bound. Go down your blood red roses. Ronnie Drew, in his fine suit of blue, and a voice like gravel that would cut you in two. We thought he was Dublin through and through, but he blew in from Dunleary. Joe Ryan and John Kelly in the front bar Their fiddles are from the County Clare Joe Heaney sings in the cold night air In the laneway after closing Our sea shanties in perfect tune And Seamus Ennis in the afternoon It was all over much too soon Days of wine and roses Well, banjo Barney calling the tune Mary Jordan's a whiz on the spoons Up the swanee and down the broom Barney's rising too they carry him bodily out to the jacks He empties his bladder and they carry him back He swallows his pint and he's right back on track How the does he do it? Any afternoon you might find there Luke Kelly and his banjo and his red hair Oh, what times, what an atmosphere What more could a young man wish for? How I'd spend my time was never in doubt This is what life was all about A bowl of soup and a pint of stout August fog and meat shoot marathoshe Dave Smith never short of a witty phrase Sonny Brogan loved the way he plays Ted McKenna, God bless the days Of Italian mandolino at closing time we didn't go far Just down the road to the pipe coffee bar The usual suspects, there you are Have yous no homes to go to? Putting up a note on the message board Sweeney's men have a gig, oh lord We have to meet at twelve o'clock For the journey down to Galway But the Sweeney van broke down at the door And we didn't get started till a quarter past four To the merry tune of the Dolan snore Haul away me, Rosie It all came to an end in 68 The rest of the world was lying in wait And I started out for a new landscape Set sail for the Pyrene Mountains From the old north wall Sailed away and all me friends were there on the quay Won't be back for many's a day But it was bloody great while it lasted It was August 1962 When I first set foot in O'Donoghue's A world of music, friends and do Hastening towards me I never could have guessed as I walked through the door Just what the future had in store A blueprint for my life I saw Lying there before me Andy, you mentioned a lot of names in that song, a lot of people who aren't around anymore as well, huge, towering figures in Irish traditional music, people like Joe Heaney, Seamus Ennis, yeah, yeah. Ronnie Drew. What, what does it mean to you to, to sing that song with all of those people, you know, not really around anymore, kind of there as ghosts maybe somewhere in the room? Yeah, well, you know, when I'm singing it, I always, I'm thinking of it, I can remember, you know, when I'm singing about Ronnie, I can remember him standing there, slim, young man in a, in a lovely suit. He always wore very, very, very fine clothes. 
no matter how drunk he was, he always looked pretty good. <laughs> and, uh, and Barney, and, and yeah, they were, they, it was a wonderful time. And, and, uh, and I, I'm really sorry those people are gone, but unfortunately that's the way we all go. And uh, I'm glad I wrote the song to remember them by anyway. Did you imbue anything at that time from those people? I mean, Joe Heaney was, you know, as a, as a Shando singer from, from the west of Ireland going over to, to America then eventually as well, um, was really a, a door into a, a tradition hundreds of years back, I mean, all, of that, all that he had. Did you kind of imbue that? Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, he used to sing, as I said in the song, he used to sing outside after, on a winter's night sometimes after the, the, the pub had closed. But, but he'd sing in the pub, you know, and he'd, he'd always grab whoever was closest to him, he'd always grab their hand, you know, to kind of... to, to, to emphasise the song that he was singing. Sometimes it happened to be me, and I was always kind of really excited to stand there holding the hand of the great man as he sang some... Uh, wonderful ballad, which I didn't understand a word of in Irish, but there you go. Um, we, we might be getting another song in a moment. Richie, did you, did you pick out a song on, on, under this theme? Yeah, on inspiration. Um, well, I come from a suburb of Dublin called Crumlin, which is a small little suburb in the south of the city. And uh, it actually punches above its way for such a small place because we've had such luminaries as Brendan Bean. Christy Brown is from Crumman too, and a man called Phil Linnett, or Phil Linnett. Um, so growing up as a musician in Crumlin, uh, the shadow of Phil Linnett was always around. We were always inspired by Phil, you know. And uh, a couple of years ago, about four or five years ago, uh, I was with two of my oldest friends, Al and Glenn, and we went into town to, to the Ambassador to see a metal band playing called Mastodon. And it happened to be on the same night that there was a lunar eclipse that night. So uh, they started to do a cover version of a Tin Lizzy song called Emerald. Uh, and just as they were playing the song, I got a text on my phone from my dad, actually, telling me that the lunar eclipse was in full swing. So we just said, this, we need to see this, basically. So me and Al, we ran outside, and we were standing at Top O'Connell Street looking up at the moon and the lunar eclipse was happening and in the background we could hear Mastodon continually covering this Tin Lizzy song. So it was just one of those moments that happens every now and again where you just feel like the universe is kind of conspiring with something. And then after the gig we went to a pub called Brussels, uh, which is actually there's a statue of Phil Linnet outside there now. And we listened to metal music and drank a lot of whiskey. And the next morning I woke up and I had a guitar and I just needed to document that night basically. So wrote a very simple little song about that experience, which I'll now play. <laughs> it's called Phil Linnet, but I found out afterwards his name was Phil. People say Linnet, but we always used to say Linnet. So here we go anyway. There was a lunar eclipse I was out drinking with Two of my oldest pals One is called Glenn, one is Al We were at Mastodon They had just covered a song By a band you might know Thin Lizzy 
Before the end of the song, I got a text on my phone. It was about the moon. It said it's ending soon. So I grabbed my friend Al. I said, let's check it out. This kind of shit doesn't happen too often. Oh, and like two giggling boys, we went outside from the gig. When we saw what we saw, we were so glad that we did. Cause there right in the sky was a half-covered moon. And all the rockers around us were saying, Look at the fucking moon. Took a breath in my lungs The band's still playing a song By a man who is from The same place that I'm from Even though he was tough You could tell he was kind And when he took the stage He owned it And now right in the sky Was his half-opened eye He's still winking at girls In the front row Oh, and I was thinking I feel him with me And I was thinking I'll raise a whiskey up And I was thinking One day I will be A dead man who plays the bass From Crumlin A dead man who plays the bass From Dublin Like Phil, 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 Phil Leonard Or Phil, 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 line it. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I never realised that the first line there, the, we were at Mastodon, I always thought it was past the dawn. It's one of those things you get to from. I would have yep. definitely slagged you if it's I knew you were at Mastodon gig, of all things. <laughs> we'll move on to our, to our next section then, uh, which is the middle part, which is stories to alarm. So this is where we get a bit darker with the stories. Um, uh, maybe, I mean, there's still, you can still find humour in dark places, um, but uh, we, will, we will go up again, so if, if we do make you a bit depressed, don't worry, there's a, there's a rise in the next section. But um, to start us off, uh, Willie, you're nearest me, so we'll come to you first for uh, your story to alarm. Ooh, me? Yeah, I alarmed you there by coming yeah, to the first. Yes, you did. <laughs> I, I thought it was last in this session. Sorry. You uh, just think back uh, to the beds we slept in in the um, 65, you know, the 60s, 65. Uh, I was dispatched to Rockwell at the age of seven, which to people that don't know it, it's a boarding school. Well, it's more like a prison now than a boarding school, but that's what they call it. And I was wondering why I was sent off there we had a, a cyclist, a fella called Shea Elliott. He was one of the best cyclists we had. Uh, in, in, one, he was probably the second best cyclist we had in Europe at the time. And um, <clears throat> I heard about Shea Elliott and had he won. He was second in a Tour de France, or in a stage of Tour de France. So I got a bicycle, a man's bicycle, and um, crossbar on it. So I was only about two foot, three foot tall at the time, and I was Shea Elliott for that day. And I got up on the bike, and I got my leg in under the, under the crossbar, and I cycled like hell. I was going to win my stage of Tour de France. 
And uh, I came down Friary Street, flying like hell, went to stop coming at the junction of, of uh, High Street and Priory Street. No brakes. So straight across the road into Woolworth's windows. <laughs> so I reckon that's why he was sent to Rockwell. Um, and I arrived in Rockwell. I was there for three years, and we had a bishop there who had retired from Kenya. And the poor man died. So they laid him out in his bed, which had a spring... Uh, mattress, you know, mattress on it. And we're all, I was, what, about 10 years of age, and we're all marched up. There was only 10 of us in kindergarten. And we were brought up, so we had to sit down around the bed and say prayers. I had never seen a corpse before in my life. I had my head down. I wasn't looking at the man at all because I didn't want to see him. And the next thing I heard movement, and I looked up, here was the bishop sitting up in the bed. <laughs> what we didn't realise, one of the smart arses in the class had got in underneath the bed. <laughs> and forced his back up, so the bishop sat up. <laughs> and with that, I tell you, I was never fast on a rugby field, but I was, Christ, I was gone out of that rumours. <laughs> That's my story. <laughs> and, And just to finish, may I say, that's absolutely true. <laughs> Andy, would you like to go next? Well, I, I also was uh, sent to boarding school for uh, reasons that were never explained at a very early age. And uh, I'm not sure about Willie's boarding school, but mine, mine was uh, very, in those days, it was very strict. You know, you know it wasn't like today. Uh, today's children seem to have a much easier ride, but... Uh, Discipline was very strong, and and you didn't question anything. And um, I was I was a good pupil. I, I was uh, I was comparatively uh, bright. Uh, and one one Monday there was every Monday there was a test, a, a Latin test, and I was quite good at Latin. Uh, but on this particular weekend, I had not uh, done, I don't know why, I did, but I'd done no preparation for it at all. And I realized that if I sat the test with the rest of the class, uh, it would be quite obvious to the headmaster who was conducting the test that I had not done any preparation. And, and that was a thing that you didn't do. So I went to the matron and I said, matron, I've got a terrible headache. And she said, uh, well, you'd better take a couple of aspirin. And I thought, well, that's no good. So I went back to her about 10 minutes later. We were getting panicky at this point. It was about 20 to 9, and the, and the, uh, the class started at 9. And um, I said, Matron, I've got a terrible pain in my stomach. She said, well, you'd better go upstairs and lie down. I thought, yes. And uh, so I went up to the dormitory, and I lay down, and I listened to the sounds of all the boys kind of at play. And, and I looked at my watch, and it was kind of five to nine, and I'm thinking, please, please. And eventually, everything went quiet, and I realized that all the boys were now in class, and I wasn't. I'd escaped. And uh, about ten past nine, a boy came up to, to ask what was the matter with me. The headmaster had sent him up, and I said, I have a bad stomachache, and I won't be able to go to, to... I won't be in class this morning. So nothing happened, and I, and I slumbered happily, until about a quarter to ten, thinking I've got away with this, when I heard two sets of uh, 
footsteps coming up the small stairs up to the dormitory. And one was, one was Matron, I could hear her voice. And the other one, I didn't know who he was until he came in. And when he came in, I thought, oh my God, it's Dr. Darley. Uh, what am I going to do? And, and uh, so he made me bear my midriff and, and he kind of, he, he tapped on my groin with his fingers and he said, uh, what does that feel like? And I thought, oh, what am I supposed to say? Uh, and I said, well, it, it, it kind of bounces. And he, uh, he stood up and he kind of rubbed his chin and he said to the major, he said, mm, it, it's appendicitis. <laughs> so I thought, oh. And about half an hour later, I was told to get dressed and I was brought downstairs and I was put into the headmaster's car. And the headmaster's wife was American and she did not understand this boarding school crap at all. Like, you know, she... Uh, and as we drove to the hospital, I'm thinking, my one chance, the only person in the whole world I could tell that this is, is not appendicitis, it's nothing, was Barbara Hale, who was driving the car, and she would have laughed her head off. But then I thought she'd also have to tell her husband, and I'd be in real trouble. So I went through with it, and I got into the hospital, and, and, and then I was terrified that when the surgeon found that there was a, a very ordinary appendix in there... I, but uh, I missed about five weeks because in those days uh, uh, <laughs> appendix operation was, was a, lot, uh, a lot more serious than it is now. And I missed a whole bunch of Latin tests. <laughs> and because of the time missed, I failed to get a decent enough scholarship. Uh, and in the summer holidays, I got a job on a film with Gina Lola Brigida. I became an actor and here I am. <laughs> But where is your appendix? <laughs> well, a good question. I, I doubt whether it's kind of in a, a, a frame anywhere. That's a serious commitment. I never missed it. No. I nearly killed myself trying to get off school once as well. I, I was trying to make the thermometer look like it was hot, that I had a temperature. So I went and I boiled a cup of tea, uh, ostensibly. And my mum came into the kitchen and said, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm just drinking tea. And I, po I popped the thermometer in it. Um, and then I just noticed all of this stuff floating around on the, in the top of the, like, the, or in the water. It just looked weird, like it wasn't wasn't right uh, in the cup of tea and I made the tea but I popped the thermometer in it and I took it out in the sink and this liquid was kind of moving around and I went to take it went to go and take a drink of it because uh, because she was there looking and then she went out of the room and I put it down and put the sink and I realized years later that was mercury so had I drank the tea I was dead so I definitely would have missed school as well but I mean <laughs> the priorities when you're a kid getting off school the lengths you'll go to like <laughs> Willie says it's a pity I didn't drink the mercury. <laughs> Tom, uh, you I, have a, I have a slightly more, I suppose, alarming alarm story. It's a bit darker. It's actually, um, it was the very beginning of uh, the idea to make Song of the Sea, where you uh, played a Selkie, Lisa. And a Selkie is a, a person who can transform in folklore, in Scottish and Irish folklore, from a a seal into a person, you know. They live as a person on land in a seal, in the sea. But I was on holidays down in Dingle again, uh, and I was with my son, who was only 10 at the time, and we were sketching down on the beach, and uh, he was, I was kind of focusing out uh, further out at sea, and he was looking at the surf coming, crashing on the shore, and he kind of said, look, Dad, it's, a, it's an alien's head. 
And I was like, oh, what's he talking? He was a real chatterbox of a kid, you know, so he would have made up stories the whole time. So I was saying, what are you looking at? And I thought it was maybe a half-deflated football or something. But when I looked closely, I could see it actually was a, a disembodied seal's head kind of decomposing in, in the, just in the foam. And then I turned around and realised that what I'd taken to be a rock behind me was actually the body of a seal. And there was dead seals all up the beach. And it was really disturbing. And I knew if he realised what it was, he'd be quite upset because he was a real animal lover. He still is, you know. And so I took him back up and uh, we ended up talking about it the whole holiday. And uh, we talked to the lady we'd been renting the cottage from. And she explained to us that it was uh, fishermen were taken out of frustration on the, on the fish stocks falling on the seals. They were blaming the seals for eating all the fish, which is obviously, I think, it's patently ridiculous. That It's clearly all the overfishing and, uh, you know, there's kind of trawlers coming in from other waters and not respecting quotas and, you know, there's a, a much more complex human-caused reason that there isn't enough fish and the industry is suffering. But taking out the frustration on the seals, in my mind, was just a scapegoat. But what was interesting was she said something to me, and another storyteller said the same thing to me when I was down there just this week, is that there used to be much more superstition and, and folklore that kind of protected seals, uh, protected the landscape. You know, there was a belief in the fairies and things like that. And there was a link, like she said, that the people would have believed that the seals could contain the souls of dead loved ones who'd been lost at sea. Or maybe the seals could be selkies, you know. Um, and so I kind of started thinking about how we're losing so much more than just stories whenever we stop believing the stories or telling the stories or respecting the stories. And I kind of wanted to, hopefully there's a way to keep the stories alive without... Um, without having to believe in them being literally true, but understanding that they connect us to the environment and to the landscape and our culture in a way that's important, you know? And that's where I started to think about, maybe for my own son or maybe generations after that, trying to revitalise the stories in a way that they're not just maybe like codified or, or fossilised as kind of twee little things for tourists, but actually somehow keeping them alive. And that's, that's why I started thinking about making the Selkie story into an animated film. But um, for me, it was an alarming thing. And I think the seal call is still something that's going on or being talked about then in Kerry. So for me, that's an alarming thing. Is there, is there something in, you know, these stories that, that we used to tell ourselves as a community and, or as the, lots of these communities, that there was kind of a, there was a wisdom in, in that? And it mightn't have been, as you say, the literal belief in the thing, but there was, yeah. a, there was a, a greater wisdom that we've maybe lost now as we've become much more individualistic and for wisdom we don't look to the community, we look to the internet and things like that. Yeah, I, I mean, for me, I read a book after that called The People of the Sea, which was a collection of stories from all down the coast. In the 1920s, some guy had collected stories from coastal villages up in Scotland all the way down the west coast of Ireland. And I thought that a lot of the stories, actually the Selkie stories, were ways for coastal communities to deal with loss, to understand. And, you know, they're almost like metaphors for loss. And I think a lot of the fairy tales have lots of layers in them. You know, they're iterative. They get retold. They're not written down. They don't become a gospel that you can't change. They get retold by each generation to suit that generation. And there's a kernel of truth and wisdom, I think, in all of them that does connect people to the landscape and helps them respect and understand that they're just, you know... Pa pa custodians for a generation and it's going to go on to someone else then afterwards it's not there to be plundered you know for immediate gain it's part of a, a longer term thing and uh, I think that wisdom and that that truth is there whether or not you have it actual you know fair enough you people might have an actual literal superstitious belief in those things but even without that you can understand true passing those stories on that there's a you know as I say a kernel of wisdom or truth or connection to the landscape that you would lose if you lost the stories you know 
Does the domain of, of animation, and, and particularly then aimed at young people, does that open up any more possibilities to explore that than if you were dealing with a kind of contemporary, sceptical yeah. adult audience? I think that's one of the lovely things about it. I, I'm a big fan as well of hand-drawn animation because I think it has a timelessness, you know. It doesn't... Um, you know, you can still watch Bambi and have an impact on a kid and it's, you know, whatever, 60 years old as a movie and it doesn't, you know, date like the software doesn't change because it's just, you know, paper and pencils and kids can relate to that and start drawing it and start taking it on so I think animation has a power and a lot of people ask, ask me things like oh would you not make films for adults like would you not like to make real films you know <laughs> and I just kind of laugh at that because I think kids movies are super important there's a huge responsibility when you make a movie for kids and for family audiences but mainly I remember the films I saw as a kid they made a huge impact on me I watch loads of movies now as an adult and I forget them nearly straight away but the films that you watch as a kid might be just the first or second or even sixth or seventh film that you've ever seen and if you're making a film for that audience, you don't make trash, you don't make rubbish. You know, you make something that says something because you have a responsibility to the next generation. At least that's how I see it. So um, I think that's one of the, the privileges of making films for children. Do you remember the first film you saw? I, I think that the first animated film I saw was Snow White. I have a very vague memory of being really afraid of the witch. And uh, my dad telling me to look at the projector because she was only small in the projector, so I could handle her coming out of the projector. <laughs> Screen, she was too big. Yeah. Richie, uh, would you like to play a song for? I don't really have an alarm story, but uh, I am slightly alarmed by the fact that uh, the next song I'm going to play is brand new. Uh, and Lisa's going to help me a little bit, hopefully. Thirsty, you have pink skin. We speak so softly of the noise within. We were the city's prey, we had nothing left to want, but our needs appear deeper than our needless fronts. And we both know. Yeah, we both know it always gets so weird whoa, 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 whoa. Too many people trying to cling on Too much decisions, let's not make them All they need to know is You can never own someone you cannot be close to them Only in that moment We lay so low We lay so low We almost disappeared oh, 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 oh. And all the randomness of meeting one another sound 
how it's never really quiet oh, 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 oh. What about the future? Who can really say? This is the present and it's presently okay But we both know Yeah, we both know it always gets so weird So weird Thanks. And we move to our final section now, which is stories to, uh, to, to humour. Um, Andy, we'll start with you. I'm sure I've had very many humorous moments in my life, but I can't remember any of them. Uh, I suppose one of the, the most uh, amusing periods of my life was the very beginning of Planksty. Uh, Christy Moore, Donald, Lenny, Lima, Flynn and myself uh, were four people who were well met in terms of, of uh, humour. Christy and Donal were excruciatingly funny all the time. And uh, we had many small boy moments, as, as you could probably say. Like, you, you know, when you're, all, when you're the four of you are staying in a hotel, and maybe there's a couple of, uh, uh, there's the roadie or something as well. Nicky Ryan was, was the sound man, and he was extremely funny as well. And... Uh, most of the stories, uh, either I can't remember or they are not retellable. But uh, there were things like um, one time Donald fell asleep uh, in his room and we went in and, and pushed his bed out of his bedroom into the lobby and uh, he woke up in the morning with all these people checking out around him. But, uh, and there was another time I remember where, where we were all staying and it was in Brittany somewhere. We were all staying in this hotel where the furniture was made of, of um, kind of uh, metal bits uh, uh, bolted together, like a, like a big Meccano set. And uh, somebody went out to the van and got uh, a couple of um, spanners and we, we undid everything. And... and <laughs> and bolted it all back together in really ridiculous shapes. And I think, again, there was somebody asleep in the bed uh, who, who woke up the next morning with his, one, of his, one of his arms kind of on a, on a, a, a big metal thing and, and, and a leg here and a leg over there. But uh, I do think on that occasion we woke up early in the morning, put everything back together as best we could. Uh, we, we, we didn't ever do any mad kind of uh, uh, damage to things. Well, there was another time with another band, I remember, where uh, somebody in the band, we came back to the hotel late at night and there was nobody there and there was a cellar door and somebody tried it and it was open. So we went down to the cellar and uh, grabbed about four bottles of wine each and back up to the room, and we're drinking away and chortling at, at the, the crime of the century, it was called. <laughs> and uh, the next morning, we got into the, the, the bus that was to take us away, and uh, the owner of the hotel came rushing out to the, the, the guy who's promoting the, the, the tour and had words. This is in Germany, words in German. And, and the, uh, the promoter got on the bus. He said, he said, 
did anybody go down into the cellar last night and steal 18 bottles of wine? <laughs> and we had to own up and, and give back uh, the 12 that we'd taken away and, and pay for the other six. And so the crime of the century didn't, didn't really work out uh, as much of a crime. I, I, I have this, this great memory of, of Planksy playing in the Carlton once and all, all these old women cleaning the, uh, the, uh, the stalls and, and somebody in the band, who shall be nameless, lighting farts on the stage. <laughs> but that, that was the kind of, kind of little boy thing that we, that we used to do. I'm sorry, that's about, that's about the best I can do. <laughs> There's a lot to be said for being sort of stuck in a van with people for a protected amount of time, for, you know, for getting up to divilment. I think it's sort of part and parcel. <laughs> uh, well, I wish I could go back to those days and, and, and relive them. Get your appendix them. back first, presumably. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was wonderfully funny. The first 18, 18 months of Planksty was, was just hysterically funny. And, of course, we were, we were a huge success as well, so everything was... Uh, Everything was really hunky-dory, and all we could do was laugh at, laugh at it. And it, was, it was a brilliant time. There must have been uh, hairy moments as well when you were... But no doubt there was funny moments in the hairy moments too. I mean, you, you travelled to Eastern Europe at a time when people weren't really doing that from, from this part of the world. You know, the, 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 the communist bloc was still there in a lot of the places as well. Yes, I, I, um, I travelled in Eastern Europe on the, the sunburnt thumb... Uh, back in 19, back in the late sixties, and sometimes you'd have nowhere to stay. I remember sleeping sleeping one time in in a doorway of a of a uh, what looked like a, a an abandoned house in the middle of the country. And I woke up in the middle of the night to find a policeman shining a light on me. And I said, um, I said, uh, Ireland tourist, and and he said, Oh, okay. They went away again. So I think that was in Bulgaria. And in Bulgaria in 1968 was the, the year of the tourist, the tourist, year of tourism, although they had no facilities and no tourists. But, uh, and there were, there were things like that. Well, I went to sleep once in a, uh, uh, out on the side of a road and, and there was a, 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 war, uh, a war game going on around me. Uh, I could see, I could hear all these people with guns and firing at each other. <laughs> Kept my head down, and uh, nobody, nobody bothered me. You were sleeping me. outdoors. Huh? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, the... yeah. Often. And did that yeah. happen often on tour? What, what well, was... it did. Yes, yes. I, I mean, I, I remember sleeping in the the uh, in the the English Garden, which is uh, just outside um, Vienna, uh, one of the, the railway stations of Vienna. And it lashed rain all night, you know, and you'd wake up in the morning, uh, like, like, like in a kind of uh, medium-hot bath in your sleeping bag, and getting out of it was the pain. I mean, when you were lying there, it was quite all right to be lying in hot water. But when you got out of the damn thing, uh, and then you had to, to, to think, how are you going to dry it before the next night? Uh, there were all these, all these little worries on, on the road that time, yeah. Um, the, the, the antics you were talking about in the early days there with, you know, with the, the, the kind of the band members all playing tricks on each other, that I'd imagine it's kind of not dissimilar with the, with the rugby team when they're off on tour and a bunch of lads together in a... You should have asked Andy there how much drink he had on him when he was sleeping outdoors. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, as, as Andy said there when you started, that there's... Uh, 
a lot of stories you can't tell. <laughs> you were nodding along at that. There was a moment there. Um, do you want me to tell a story? Oh, if you have, or if you... Well, I, I've just two short ones because you, an awful lot of them you couldn't tell anyway. I'll hold you for one moment just because yeah. I know because uh, Andy has to run off. Um, Andy is playing a gig tonight. Uh, Sweeney's men are playing in the Watergate Theatre. Um, this is the plug for, for, for later on. Um, so you can I'd love to just there. wait and hear Willie's story first. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're two short ones, so they won't All take right, too great. long. Um, we were playing at Twickenham. Now, I don't know what the new stadium is like now, but um, I was, I'm a very superstitious guy. I always came out last. But, um, and I was always in the loo having a cigarette before I came out. But um, the, the referee that day was a fellow called Alan Hosey, and it was his first uh, international as a referee. So when you, come out of the ton- when you come out of the dressing room, you turn right, and the English team were out in the pitch. Of course, I, being superstitious, came out last, smoking my cigarette, and Alan was standing across the far side of the tunnel. But the minute you turn into the tunnel in Twickenham, the cameras are on you. So I walked over to Alan, and then half finished the cigarette, and I said, Alan, will you hold that for me? And I said, I'll be back for it. So I ran out in the pitch. The first time they've seen him on camera walking down the tunnel holding a cigarette in his hand. Thinking he was smoking it, of course, it was my cigarette he had, but uh, needless to say, we got on very well ever, ever since. Uh, but the, the next one I'll I tell you is, it's about my old friend, Moss Keen. We were going to New Zealand in 77, and <clears throat> Moss wasn't picked on the original tour party, but we all had to go to London to... Um, this is the Lions tour. Lions tour in 77, and we all had to go to London to get a medical checkup anyway. So went over right past and uh, Jeff Wheel who was the second row to go, one of the four second rows to go on tour, Jeff had a nervous twitch uh, so if you're standing beside Jeff in the line out you'd think he was going to box you because his arms would be going everywhere but anyway Jeff was turned down on, the medi- on medical grounds as having a sort of a, a bad heart but he was also told at the meeting that he could go back and play next year. So how they could tell him he had a bad heart and he could play the following season, I don't know. But anyway, Moss was substituted in. And uh, I didn't bother ringing Moss to congratulate him or anything else. I just said I'd treat it as a total surprise that I didn't know he was on the tour when we arrived in Dublin Airport to fly to London. But I arrived at Dublin Airport anyway when I saw Moss and he had two little kit bags. And I went over to Moss and I said, Moss, where are you going? He said, I'm going to New Zealand with you. I said, you're hardly going to New Zealand with me with two kit bags. He said, no. He said, look at your case there. He said, you've loads in there for me. (laughs) And I said, okay. But anyway, he said, look, he said, if I take off my underpants going to bed at night, he said, I'll get three weeks out of them. (laughs) So that's... When you when you compare the idea the idea there of um, of of running out onto the pitch of even smoking a cigarette of even being a smoker when you're when you're you know when you're a professional uh, athlete or you're smoking running onto the pitch compared with now you see players and they've got these packs on their back which is measuring their heart and everything and their fitness and they get all the stats from that um, what what do you think when you look when you look at the game today? Versus versus when you when you were playing, is it just a different thing altogether, or is it? 
Oh, it's a totally different game today. I mean, it's not... Um, in actual fact, I think... Probably I shouldn't be saying it, but I actually think it's a highly dangerous game. I wouldn't like to be playing it now myself. Um, and it must be boring, too, getting up every day going training. <laughs> oh, jeez. No sense in that. There's another story where... Uh... In your, in your later days in the team, when, um, when Willie, Willie John McBride was um, captaining and you came into the dressing room, and he, uh, he said, do you, want to, do you want to do a warm-up there, Willie? That, that actually happened in Black Rock, and, and um, I, I didn't know. Uh, Sean Diffley, who was a reporter for The Independent, uh, there was a tree right outside the dressing room in Black Rock, and they used to keep a car space there for me because I was normally just at the last minute of the games. And I didn't know Dipley was around the far side of the tree, so a couple of alicadoos, when I got out of the car, they said to me, Willie, you missed the warm-up. And I said, lads, sure, it doesn't really matter. I had a heater on the car the whole way up. <laughs> um, but uh, Diffley just heard that. That's how that became known. Well, we thank Andy for, for being with us. Thank you very much indeed. It's been lovely to be here. And... Tom, would you like to give us a story? A, a very uh, short uh, Hollywood, Hollywood-y story for you. It's the first time we went to the Oscars back in 2010. And I was sitting beside uh, the other animation uh, directors and the, the chap beside me, his wife. And at the Oscars, you know, all the guys just wear these boring monkey suits. But the girls, Neil Gaiman described all the ladies looking like watercolour butterflies, you know. They all wear these amazing long dresses with trails and stuff. So the lady beside me had a long trail. And every time she and her husband won the Oscar, so she was standing up to clap. And every time she stood up, I was always invariably standing on the trail of her dress. So it got embarrassing as the night went on. So as we were shuffling out... At the end of the ceremony, Sigourney Weaver was in front of me. She's a statuesque, uh, huge, amazing woman. And she did this incredibly long trail as well. And I, was, I just whispered to my wife, Lisa, I said, I'm going to really try not to stand on her dress, you know. And there was a booming voice beside me saying, go on, see if you can rip it off. <laughs> and I looked, I looked over and it was Morgan Freeman chuckling away to himself. So. That was my little bit of Hollywood glamour, you know. <laughs> Must, there, there must be um, there must be some some stories that you see when you go over there, and the, the, do you engage with the parties and all of that stuff that happens after and around the Oscars? Um, yeah, this time we did much more than the, the first time we went out. I think the first time we went out, we were just sort of wide-eyed in wonder and didn't know where we were, what we were doing. Where this time we had a bit more savvy. We'd been out a few times since and stuff. So yeah, we went to a, a couple of the. It's funny, you know, all the, the actors kind of show up to get photographed for half an hour and then they're off somewhere else and all the rest of us get to hang around and be, you know, bask in the glory of being nominees. But all the attention is on like the 20 or so actors that are nominated. So it's just a bit of crack. Do you, do you go with it when you're there? Surely there must be, a, there must be that kind of... Irish scepticism looking at it all and being like, sure, geez, this is mental. Yeah, very like, much, know. yeah. It's la la land. And it's always quite surreal just to even be there and seeing how it all works and all like that. But this year I was just really excited because when I was about 11, the 1989 Batman movie came out, you know. 
So Michael Keaton was there, and I'd been a super huge fan when I was a kid. And so I got to chat to him. I was mainly, there's two things that delighted me. The first was that he said he loved Ireland, and he'd been to Kilkenny before, which was pretty exciting. And uh, the second was I was the same height as him. So I always thought I was small, but I'm the same height as Batman, so I'm all right. But uh, he said... Uh, <laughs> He was very nice. As we were leaving, he was saying, put the kettle on, I'll be coming back to Kilkenny soon. So there you go. He promised me he'd be coming back. So there you go. And now it's on record. So yeah. as yes. we know, Michael Keaton is an avid Soundings listener. So yeah. <laughs> See the bat wing landing there in Kilkenny Castle. All my 11-year-old dreams coming true. Cool. Richie, do you want to give us, do you want to give us another one and tell us what? Hello. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, like I was thinking when you're talking about humour... Uh, then I was thinking, you know, I have one song which is sort of autobiographical and my life is pretty much a joke, so uh, this, this would be a good one to do, I think, so. It's a kind of a long one. Um, it's got a few verses, so if you stick with it, that'd be sweet. Um, it's basically when I reached my mid-30s, I sort of wrote this song which sort of summed up uh, a lot of things that had happened to me in, in my life since I was a kid. Uh, and it just kind of flowed out and there's one or two funny bits in it so it's called Lying on a Deathbed and I never really play this one so we'll see how it goes at six and watching MTV The pet shop boys were at the height of their fame My grandmother was still alive This was 1984 Maybe 85 Sandwiches ready I'm off on a trip British Bay with a community group All of the L ones are always steaming and the young ones are wafer thin The whole coach would join in These are all a pack of wankers down the back <laughs> That sort of crack <laughs> Travelling alone, I was so grown up I was king of the jokes my balls hadn't dropped I used to love it Holding court With all the grannies Who would dote Mostly dead I suppose Secondary school Was so ramshackle Nicknames Scrawled on cubicles Afternoons With heavy clocks Swapping tapes and talking shop School lost out cause I joined a band Received an encore bass from my parents We had an awful, awful name We could barely even play We were so full of spunk Do you reckon there'll be any girls at this? We played our gigs at the Baggot Inn 
my mate Jimmy was managing I still see him now and then He's actually my longest friend We're getting older I suppose And in the early days When I first met my wife I was breathing for two A pregnant man We were joking round in bars Drinking beginnings from our hearts And all the rest of this world Got washed down a drain And for a while at least There was no thinking But love's a shield made from glass And its protection cannot last forever What if something happens and it's bad? Don't even ask And so we blocked it out We had adventures Went to raves in forests All of the trees are turning blue Baby, can you see those changes too? They are beautiful I finally figured out what I could do well I learned to tear myself away from all distraction There were so many cul-de-sacs Lined with quick fixes and cheap hats I went up my own arse To smell the shit Oh, that might sound strange But I recommend it Cause when you finally crawl back out You are so happy that you can shout Using your own voice I mean, you finally figure out what to sing Now I stand where I have always been It was not me that moved It was those other things I've been observing all my life I somehow wound up here tonight At this phantom place in front of me And it buckles under a poetry Of things Which do not weigh And will dissolve for me one day I will be vapor Do you reckon that that's all there really is? When I'm lying on a deathbed Playing history in an old head I wonder which tiny detail Will be dancing around my retina When I'm lying on a deathbed Thanks. Cheers. <clears throat> Thanks for sticking with that one. <laughs> that, I'm, I'm so happy you, you played that song. It's... Um, it's, it's one which you kind of put out there a few years ago yeah. and you, you don't long. play it a whole lot. It's long. It's a, you got to kind of 
it's kind of might be a bit boring if you're not listening to the lyrics, you know. So in, in an environment like this, it's great to play when people listen. But in, we normally play quite upbeat electronic sets and it doesn't really work at a gig like that. So thanks a lot for listening to it. <laughs> It's um, it, it 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 might be long as songs go, but if you take you know, if you were to say to someone, write a song about all of life so far. Yeah, uh, it needs to be long, I suppose. Also, I heard it was a trad fest, so I was just I was just thinking, Sean knows. Okay, I can be long. <laughs> and what what sort of um, what point did did that come? It's a very reflective song, um, and yeah, there's a lot of kind of thinking about thinking very honestly it, about yourself, and then. And then singing about that, which is a whole other well, level as well. For me, songwriting is about like uh, just refracting the world through, like the world is a confusing and amazing place and uh, songwriting enables you to sort of get a little bit of understanding just for even a short period of time and then that's the song and then you move on from it. Uh, and yeah, so it's just like, so the best songs for me just come really easily. You don't have to think about them and they just flow like a conversation or a breath and that was one of them. Amazing. Do you feel the same way about ideas for, for, for films and things like that? Um, kind of, but I think it's really iterative. I think, you know, you have a start of an idea and you know that's enough that will carry you through. But I find I have to layer it with so many versions and trials and I have to go wrong and then find out that I've been going wrong and go right again. It's almost like, a, I don't know, there's a, there's, a, there's a journey in bringing it from just the first idea to the to what ends up on screen and sometimes you look back and go oh my god it could have been terrible if we'd done it like that in the first day so I guess for me there's a there's an initial idea that carries right through for sure but no the actual creation can be quite uh, up and down sorry arduous I would completely agree with that in terms of like writing uh, albums and stuff it's always a process of revision and getting on but every now and again like I find you get you strike gold where you actually get one thing that just feels like it's really the thing that it is in the first go and it's really rare but um, yeah for me I get that now and then with drawing like doing a drawing but yeah yeah, crafting a film is such a big thing when you're a player is it good to be reflective or do you have to kind of think on the next game always or should you be looking back at, at, at form and things like that I wasn't listening to you. I was, I, I was daydreaming. I thought you'd left me alone. You're with the lads. <laughs> so, go ahead. When you're a player, is it, is it good to be reflective, to look back as well in the same way that, 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 the, that, that the, the song was there? Or is it, do you always have to be looking forward no, you, to the next you, game? You have to keep looking forward. I mean, once you go out on that park, and you're invariably going to make mistakes. So you have to put those behind you and just keep positive and keep looking forward and you know <clears throat> just the way the lads were talking there uh, I was very lucky or the lads in my era were very lucky because we were picked a fortnight before an international so we knew two weeks before a game that we were playing and <clears throat> the first thing you, you look at is your own team and you say right who's not going to do the job you look for the negative things in the team and but before you go out on that pitch you would have played that game uh, 150 times in your own head so you, you would have actually played the game 150 times so when you go out on, on that park you're an automatic pilot you, you verbally can see what's going to happen any area you were in the pitch you knew what was going to happen in that area so you were able to defend against or attack it you, you know uh, but it's all as I said earlier it's all between the six inches between your ears 
That's and you play. So where are you when you're playing the game in your head? Do you do it when you're before bed? Do you, you're lying down? Or are you oh, just no, going you're, into thinking about it throughout the day? How do... you, you, you'd be walking around during the day and you'd be, you know, you'd be thinking about it. It'd be at the back of your head all the time, you know. It's, uh, uh, I remember one time we were going to Paris and I had um, serious trouble with a number eight. Um, Bastia, Bas yeah. He was about six foot eight and I played two years against him. And, I wasn't getting anywhere with him in the line-out. He was beating the socks off me. And um, the Wednesday night before the game, I was sitting down at home and I was doing, writing down moves and chatting to Ellen. Ellen, my wife, was sitting at the table with me. And about an hour and a half doing this, and I said to her at the end, I said, what do you think of that plan? She said, I think that's fabulous. And I looked at her and I said, what the Jesus do you know about it? <laughs> So, I mean, you, you, you pre-plan, you know. I mean, it's the lads there, the, you know, making music and, and cartoons. It's the same thing. It's, it's, it's the same in all walks of life. Well, uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for, to our audience here for, for coming um, to Kilkenny Trad Festival, for inviting us down in the first place, and to all the staff here at Kilkenny Castle for, for hosting us. Um, and thank you especially to our guests, to Andy Irvine, Willie Duggan, Tom Moore, and Richie Egan Jape. You can listen to more episodes of Soundings by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes or visiting our new website, soundingspod.com. And let us know what you thought of the episode. We're on Twitter at soundingspod and we're on Facebook too. And if you'd like to donate so that we can, uh, we can make more episodes, we would be eternally grateful. Uh, you can do that our, at our website, soundingspod.com. And that's also where you can go if you want to find out more about our live shows. Our next three will be um, from Sutton House in London. Will we have another song to finish it out? There is a nod. No one has said no. If anyone has any objections to a song, please raise your hand. No, no objections to a song. We did a... Myself and Lisa did a David Bowie tribute thing in the concert hall, was it? Yeah, we did a, a David Bowie tribute a few months ago and uh, every time we get an opportunity to sing the song... We have, we, are like, we have to sing the song together. So this is a David Bowie cover a song called Sorrow. It's actually a Mersey Beat song that David Bowie covered, but... Is it? I didn't uh, know that. So yeah, it's called Sorrow. <clears throat> With your long blonde hair and your eyes of blue The only thing I ever got from you was sorrow Sorrow you acted funny, tried to spend my money You're out there playing your high-class games of sorrow Sorrow You never do what you know you ought to Something tells me you're the devil's daughter Sorrow Sorrow oh. I try to find a 
I tried to find her cause I can't resist her Sorrow Sorrow With your long blonde hair With your long blonde hair And your eyes of blue thought from you Sorrow Sleep last night with your long blonde hair. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for coming. <laughs> Thanks a lot.